Pearson is very pleased to sponsor this series of JogPod. Pearson provide a blend of content, curricula, assessment and training to make the teaching and learning of geography at GCSE and A-level more engaging and effective. For more information about our geography qualifications, please visit us at qualls.pearson.com forward slash geography or follow us on Twitter at edxl underscore jog. Well, hello everyone and welcome to JogPod. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Joseph Kursky about geographic information systems. Joseph's probably the, uh, the most global expert GIS consultant that I've come across. Um, three degrees in geography, a GISP certificate, 30 years experience in federal agencies, private industry and universities. You've done 5,000 videos on STEM, I think, geography, on STEM, geography, teaching and learning, GIS space and place. You've been involved in eight books, either as an editor or a co-editor. You've done 1,500 blog essays, 1,000 peer-reviewed chapters and articles. You've been in 350 schools plus, that's still rising, 150 universities, 150 major conferences, 16 countries, five continents. I don't know where you sleep. Welcome, Joseph. Oh, John, thanks for the kind words. Much appreciated. It's a team effort, though, uh, but that's very kind of you. And it's good to chat with you again. I know we've known each other for a long time, and it's, a, it's been a great journey. And looking forward to talking with you about progress, challenges, the road ahead, etc. Well, we have come a long way, haven't we? You've actually you've you've come a long way virtually because you've just come from the American Geophysical Union Conference, the AGU, and here you are with me. So well travelled. We first met at, um, when I went to the GA and was working on digital worlds, and that was mm-hmm. about two thousand and six. And you were well into GIS already by then, and so. As you say, we've worked for an awful long time. And I'm, I'm slowing up here because I know very well once we get started, I'm just not going to get a word in edgeways. You are and always have been the most enthusiastic, the most inspirational advocate for GIS I've ever met. And when I was thinking, I can't get my head around this, you were always there to say, well, it's plain easy. You just do this and you do that. And it kept me going. And it's been fantastic. So I, I, I then, because I knew we were doing this, I thought I'll go and have a dig around and see what else you've been up to. And I said there was the 1,500 blog posts, but I, I didn't realise that you also had a musical career. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I've been to see all your, or listened to all your geography song parodies on SoundCloud. And uh, I did find one, one of my favourites, I think it's the, uh, is a classic Kinks. I'm not going to make you sing it. But I'm not content to make these maps in the daytime. I always absolutely brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, John. Um, I, I hope it wasn't too much torture. You know, one of the objectives of, of all that stuff is um, even the geo song parodies is to help, help people to uh, teach in an interesting, engaging way. Right. And whatever it takes to um, uh, engage students and faculty, I think. 
I can't tell you how many times it grieves me when someone has said, and you've probably uh, heard this as well from colleagues over the years, oh, I took a geography course and it was so boring, or I took a GIS course and it was so boring. And it just, it just, oh, it grieves my heart because it, it just shows that you can teach anything that's fascinating and engaging and relevant to the 21st century in a boring way, right? You can teach it in a dry way or uh, having students disengaged. And so you and I are all about, yeah, how do we engage students more effectively? How do we engage faculty in their profession? So all this is just an attempt to provide multiple ways for people to uh, engage in their profession and also to get students engaged in the subjects. It is hard. I'm going to come on to that. It, it is hard when it's taught in, in ways that students find difficult to engage with. But before, before I talk about its value in education, I'd just like, for the benefit of people who are thinking GIS, what is it? I haven't started using it in my teaching yet. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to just guide us through a potted history of, of GIS and how it benefits business first. Certainly. The team that I'm on actually has two goals, two aims, and it's not just the ESRI education industry team. It is you, me, academic uh, instructors in universities, uh, technical colleges, uh, uh, primary and secondary schools, researchers, uh, the broader community. So we're all in this together. But I think uh, just to, to, to highlight two, two main goals, one is the deeper implementation and engagement of geospatial technologies in education. And by deeper, I mean the whole platform. GIS is a platform now. It's, it's a cloud-based software as a service enabled platform. And a platform by its phrase, its term, in, implies that you can build on it, which I think is for education, a groundbreaking you know, um, kind of a thing. It is, it is completely transformative. And you mentioned digital worlds earlier. The idea for, for those of you that are listening here, if you don't know about this, it, it was really, you were ahead of your time there, John, uh, because the idea was you've got cloud-based data and tools and you're using those. You're not just installing software like you had been you know, up to that point. So the idea was the, the cloud offers so many advantages. You've got updated data, you've got tools that evolve uh, over time, the, the advantage of not having to download every single thing to your own device, and so freeing you to use really any device, anytime, anywhere. Um, and, and, you know, over the last 15 years, that has evolved into other platforms, but it was all based on the same kind of notion that we have these things in the cloud, just like your Google Docs and your OneDrive and your music in the cloud and the other things that you have in the cloud nowadays. I mean, sure, you still have desktop tools, but having GIS in the cloud is, is transformative. So that's the deeper part is helping students to understand and engage with multiple pieces of this platform, including field tools like Survey123, web mapping applications such as Story Maps, uh, spatial analysis like in ArcGIS Online, and so on. So doing at least engaging pieces of the cloud, of this platform. So that's the deeper part. In other words, GIS is not just, I'm teaching ArcGIS Pro 2.5. Well, okay, that's a piece of of it, but it's not. We don't want we don't want GIS to equate to teaching version X of software Y. It's the it's the the, the whole platform notion. So that's the deeper part, and then the broader part. The mission is, I feel that 
spatial thinking and geospatial technology are too valuable to just be in one or two disciplines. It's just too valuable to be in environmental studies, geography, earth science, et cetera. It needs to be in, you touched on business, business, health, engineering, data science, these emerging data science programs in universities, for example. So it needs to be in multiple disciplines because everybody needs to, if they're not already, asking the question the, about the whys of where. So to me, the, the broader part is, is helping other instructors and their students and their support staff, deans, university provosts, et cetera, to engage in this in multiple disciplines. So it's the deeper and the broader part. So circling back to your question, though, GIS in business, that's one of the areas, and we could mention others, health and, and a few others that are sort of low-hanging fruits where it makes total sense. In the business uh, community, location, 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 right? John has always been sort of the mantra. And so to you and I looking at, uh, you know, spatial thinking and geotechnologies, we say, this is a perfect match. This is a perfect fit. If you're teaching supply chain management, how did that phone of yours get assembled? All the pieces that went into it from the, from the mining of the minerals that went into it to the manufacturing, to the distribution, et cetera. How did all that get assembled? Um, and we could say the same thing for food and, and any other good or service. You know, supply chain management, marketing, risk assessment, insurance, site selection, optimization, all of those concepts that are really fundamental to business courses, um, they're, they're starting to use GIS. But then more broadly, outside of the academic community in business itself, yeah, you've got services and goods from, you know, Starbucks. We had the Starbucks people that people uh, uh, listening to this can actually go and, and listen to or watch uh, at the SRE user conference a couple of uh, years ago talking about, you know, from the growing of the coffee all the way to the packaging to the siting, the individual stores, GIS is all through that co operation. And, you know, hundreds of other businesses that we could talk about today uh, using this. So so in the business community, there, there really is... Um, an engagement with these web-based geospatial tools and the whole spatial thinking perspective. That term spatial thinking, I think, needs unpicking. It's helping us see the world in a different way. I went to a, um, a, a quote from David Orr when I first started looking at GIS, and he said, this was in 1994, now more than ever, we need people who think broadly and who understand systems, connections, patterns, and causes, which is what you were talking about just there. Uh, and when you talked about spatial thinking, and so it can support students in seeing these patterns and changes, and then perhaps being more critical in the way they think, um, it would be, I think it'd be interesting for you to, to just clarify what that means. What is spatial thinking? And, and how is it different to, so this is a double question. What's spatial thinking? And you've said it can go across subjects. How is it different to you, but how does it support thinking geographically? Well, first of all, John, uh, you and I see to eye, eye to eye on so many of these things. That quote from Orr is one of the ones that I frequently use uh, in my various uh, you know, teaching and opportunities during each year. I, I almost always use that quote because it, it touches on the dual nature of what we want students and faculty and others to engage in. In other words, it's good to specialize, right? So, hey, you stu student A, you're interested in soils. Great. Student B, you're interested in uh, oceans. Uh, student C, you're interested in population change, migration, or city planning, whatever it is. Specialize is, is a good thing. But also don't lose the holistic view, which is, I think, 
so fundamental to geographic thinking. It's a holistic way of looking at the world, right? We, we're looking at systems of systems, the lithosphere, the hydrosphere, the anthrosphere, uh, the atmosphere, the biosphere. We're, we're, we're interested in, in finding out and, and picking apart how all those things interact and work together. So I always encourage students, and I know, I know you do too, because you love the or quote, um, and just knowing you these years, that you, you, you say, don't, don't lose sight of the of the holistic view, because that's the kind of thinkers that we need in our 21st century world, right? To grapple with all of these perplexing, complex issues that increasingly affect our everyday lives, whether it's you know pollution or climate or or population change or uh, um, biodiversity loss, etc. Energy, water, human health. I mean, you, we could go on, right, John? But the point is, the the holistic view of, of systems thinking, I think, is really important, and that's what employers are looking for. Our organization, ESRI, and many other you know federal agencies, local governments, uh, private companies, nonprofits, academics. I mean, they're all looking for employees that can think holistically as well as have some specialization. So I think both of those are important. But secondly, though, back on your question about spatial thinking, in my way of thinking, it is it is really three things. It's sort of a, 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 a like a, a three-legged stool, if you will, a, a, like a yeah, a stool uh, with three legs. Um, and that is the spatial thinking stool. I think it includes skills and not just geotechnology skills, but skills in communication, solving problems, you know, asking good questions, insightful questions, gathering data, then being able to assess whether that data is any good, especially nowadays when there's so much data to uh, grapple with, right? So there's some skills, communication skills, have your elevator speech down, those sorts of things. But there, it's also content knowledge, whether it is climate or soils or population or anything else. Um, so there's the content knowledge is important. You know, and I say that because in part people, you know, think occasionally with they don't know me very well, they'll they'll say, well, Joseph, you're just promoting the tools. You just want people to to know how to buffer and overlay and geocode and stuff like that. Well, no, those tools are a means to an end. The more important tool is your brain. Right, that is the most important spatial thinking tool of all. It's not the. It's not whether software X can do a more effective georeferencing job than software Y. This tool, the, your brain, is the the one that you and I are really passionate about nurturing in, in students and in faculty. The spatial thinking tool. Um, so it's content, it's skills, and then it's the geographic perspective, which I think touches on both of those other things, and the. The thing that's challenging about spatial thinking, I know we'll get into this in a bit, but it's sort of like this, this harkens back to my, you know, U.S. geological survey days. So forgive the, you know, the physical geography reference here, but if the cobbles and boulders in a conglomerate are the disciplines like biology, geography, um, mathematics, it, it, et cetera, computer science, you know, those are the cobbles and boulders. And those are the things that we have subjects in school to teach or in universities. The, the, the grains of sand that, that bind all that together into a conglomerate is like spatial thinking. And so when you, when you grab that sand in a conglomerate, for example, it, it, it slips through your fingers. It's hard to grasp and it's hard to define for some people. And it's hard to say, oh, we need a course in spatial thinking because it touches on so many of these other cobbles and boulders, i.e. disciplines, right? So I think that's one of the challenges that we've always had in promoting and nurturing spatial thinking is that 
okay, we need to define it. Um, and then we need to figure out, okay, where can we purposefully teach this? There are ways that you can, there are many ways that you can teach this, right, John? But, but how, do, how do we do that in a purposeful way that's meaningful for students and faculty? So I, I see it as a geoliteracy, as this sort of three-legged stool of content, skills, and the geographic perspective. And, and I, I, I have mixed feelings about calling it the geo geographic perspective because, you know, when we say geographic just like in geographic information systems, some people say, well, that's not me. I'm teaching biology or mathematics or data science. I don't do geography. I don't teach geography. Well, the geographic perspective, I still like having it in there because it is, it is about space and place and change over space and time. So, you know, as much as people say, well, we should not have even in the geographic uh, information systems phrase, and, you know, somewhere around the world, places that it's called geomatics, location analytics, that's fine too, but I, I still like the geographic part because it shows that what you and I and the others in the geography community listening to this, it actually matters for so many disciplines beyond geography. And so uh, that's 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 one way of thinking about it. I certainly welcome you know comments that people have about the way that they define it. But to me, it's it comes down to what's where, why is it there, and why should we care? So that action component, why should we care? So what about biodiversity loss, energy, water, health, migration. Why do we care about those things? So what's where, why is it there, and why should we care? I think if we go right the way back to John Snow and his mapping, that would he would have never made the conclusions that he did about the uh, where the pollution source was, where the cholera source was, without looking at where the, uh, the various wells were that he could then turn off. Because Good point. Identified I, the spread. Mm -hmm. I and others have, there, there are multiple versions of this, but that's one of the most frequent lessons that I teach, for example, in ArcGIS Online. I've got, a, I've got a point layer of all of the, sadly, the cholera victims, and then I've got another point layer of the water wells, and then I have educators and students when they go through this uh, particular activity do things like okay let's let's map the uh, let's create a um, a statistically significant hotspot map let's route john snow to all of the water wells so he can uh, test all the water wells let's route him to every single individual house and what in the most efficient way possible uh, and some other things that they do inside a buffer each one of the of the wells and count how many uh, unfortunately, uh, how many victims were in each one of these buffers. The reason why I say unfortunately is because a lot of times we're working with disasters, whether it's health or earthquakes or something else. And occasionally students say, wow, this is really cool. Well, it's fascinating. And I understand, I understand why you're using that sort of blanket term, but remember this is, these are people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's this little bit of anchor in reality, but yes, that's, that's exactly right. Without the geographic perspective, um, that problem would not have been understood in the rich and deep way that it was. And another neat thing about that, John, as you as you well know, but maybe FYI for the, the listeners, it, I, I think this is an encouraging thing about, you know, reflecting, okay, 160 years later now, 170 years later almost, that we're in right now. And that is once people realized, oh, we've got a major problem here. We're, we're polluting our own water supply. Uh, okay. And we've got 2 million people in London right now. Uh, and there's 2 million people in Paris and there's, two, et cetera. We've got this global issue. You know, fast forward to today, we've got some major issues on our planet, right? But I, I really do believe that, you know, we've got these smart people, we've got good tools, we've got an immense amount of wonderfully geographically laden data. Um, and we've got 
we've got these good people that can, you know, these decision makers that, that are coming up through schools and universities to be change agents in society. So I, I, it, the, point, the point for me is I'm, I'm an optimist, John. I think we can, we can actually grapple at, with and solve these perplexing problems just like they did back then. If they would have said, oh, this is too impossible. We cannot solve this. Let's just give up. Well, where would we be? We wouldn't be here today, <laughs> really. Um, and so the same thing today, we, we can actually get a handle on these issues through steady use of geographic technologies and spatial thinking and all the things that you and I feel passionately about. So it's encouraging this relational thinking. It's encouraging criticality of thought as well. So critical thinking becomes, which is now really quite um, quite an important skill to start developing with students. The DfE funded some critical thinking, the GA presented courses on. It, and mm-hmm. it, it, there are many ways that we can look at changing our activities to create conditions for children to think more critically about the information that they're given, which they need to in, in a world with, with alternative facts, with, uh, <laughs> with different realities. So they have to be able to make those sorts of critical decisions. So let's talk about some, you've you got onto one or two, but it'd be really useful, I think, to think about some practical classroom examples that you've got now. So let's, let's flip it to what teachers could actually use. Could, with, with 1,500 blog posts, you're going to have to be a bit selective because otherwise we'd be still here tomorrow morning. But um, it would be really interesting if you can point us to some things that are, almost off the shelf. I say that because I loved my GIS, but I can quite often get lost in finding stuff. And then suddenly I realized that an hour and a half has gone past. I couldn't do that if I was still teaching because I haven't got, I honestly haven't got the time. True. The bell is going to ring in 10 minutes and you've got to have something available right now. Mm -hmm. So some quick wins that, that, that you find most exciting that you, you teach with or that teachers could access in the UK relatively easily. Indeed. Okay. Uh, well, the first one that comes to mind is related to the topics that we've been talking about, especially the last thing that you mentioned, critical thinking, being critical of data, especially going forward in this and future decades is going to be amazingly important, right? So for example, ArcGIS Online, ArcGIS.com. It's an open platform, John. There's no ESRI or any other data police out there saying, you can't put that data there. So we've got data from, you know, middle school and elementary, you know, primary school students all the way up to, you know, United Nations Environment Program, the World Health Organization and other international agencies with data in the same platform and everything in between. So because it's an open platform, it is very much related to what you're saying. In other words, you need to be critical consumers of data. Also, um, I would just argue, especially mapped data, right? Maps have this sort of air of authenticity. They still have this air of uh, being produced by authoritative agencies, uh, the Ordnance Survey, the WHO, and, and many of them are. But of course, anybody nowadays is actually not just a consumer of mapped data and maps, but a producer of maps, which is of course, one of the reasons why you and I love uh, students and faculty to get into uh, actually creating story maps and web maps and, and publishing those and sharing those. So the point is everybody is a map producer as well as a map consumer. And that has huge critical thinking and data quality implications as well. But one of the resources that I would just mention here is the Spatial Reserves Data Blog. I know a data blog, but John, 
Or the data blog, it sounds super boring. Oh my gosh, I can't hardly extend my excitement. But uh, really, I, the way that um, my colleague and I structured it is we have these short essays that come out every week or two about, you know, for example, teaching ethics with geography and GIS. Um, everyday examples of being critical of the data is a, a recent one that I wrote. And that uh, shows a couple of different examples, including a data feed that has 3,278 degree temperature reading with 255% humidity and a 255 uh, kilometers per hour wind speed. The point is even data feeds from the internet of things can be wrong. You need to be critical of the data especially map data, because again, it has this sort of air of being, oh, it's authoritative. And because it's a map, therefore it's perfect. Or when you and I know that there are projection issues and classification issues and uh, color and symbology issues that people need to think carefully about when they're consuming, but also when they're producing a map. So there, there are some short essays in that spatial reserves data blog. It kind of relates to what you were talking about at the beginning, where I and my colleague, Jill Clark, we, we present these in digestible ways for educators and beyond to encourage their students to, okay, let's go through these couple of examples. Let's think critically about it. And then when we go now to a da geospatial data portal from a different organization or from a federal agency or from a private company or even a university data portal, we're going to think critically about it. We're not just going to say, oh, I'm going to add real-time weather data, current earthquakes, and population density, or any other data. And I'm, I'm going to, within 60 seconds, right, you and I, and so can teachers and students, create a web map within a minute. But do you know where all that data came from? Do you know who created it, and where, when it was created, and the scale? And just because you can zoom in doesn't mean the scale gets better, or the, 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 the accuracy gets better as you zoom in. I mean, off, that's... Uh, Maybe an obvious point, but oftentimes I'm behind someone, you know, and they're zooming in and they, the way they're talking, it makes me think that they think it gets more accurate as you go to, you know, one to 10,000, one to 5,000, one to 1,000 scale. Hey, the software lets you do that, but doesn't mean the data gets better. Um, so just, just things like that. There are practical things. Okay. So that's one, one resource, the spatial reserves data blog. And then the second resource I would say is there are selected web mapping applications that I use all the time. They're all based on this WebGIS platform. In this case, they're all built on two things, ArcGIS Online and the Living Atlas of the World. Now, when I was at all those federal agencies, I was there for a long time, John, basically from the Cretaceous to the Holocene. Anyway, when I was at those agencies, I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great to have a, a this, this, this library of, of content at different scales that people can just feed into some sort of a web GIS and just consume? Well, it's not the end-all, be-all, but we finally have something like that. Again, it's, it's, it's 8,500 layers, so it doesn't have every single data layer known to humankind, but it is curated, and it's updated, and it's, it's got metadata with it, so you can make a critical assessment as a student, as a, as a teacher, as a researcher, as to whether or not it's fit for your use. So the, the, the few that I'll mention here, uh, based on the Living Atlas of the World and ArcGIS Online, one of them is the Water Balance app. So it's, the, it's a web mapping application, and none of these that I'm going to mention have any sort of requirement to log in. So again, it's, hey, teacher, you know, bell is going to ring in five minutes, face-to-face -face or virtual bell, and um, I've got to teach about precipitation or soil moisture right away. Okay, so this water balance 
web mapping application gives you six variables, soil moisture, evapotranspiration, uh, snowpack, uh, precipitation, et cetera, for any place on the planet. And it's tied to the internet of things. So you've got this not real time feed, but it, it goes to, it, it spans about eight or nine years and it goes, it's about a couple months old. So you can see trends over time, no matter where you click on the map and then you can, you've got zoom and pan capabilities. So I can see, for example, I can teach all kinds of concepts there and we can go on and on, but I'll be really brief here, John, as I know you and I get passionate about this, but if you click on the Amazon, you can see this beautiful if you, and, and change the variable to precipitation. It's not winter and summer, right? It's the wet season and the dry season. You can see, yeah. it, see it right away. And then if I go to Southern Algeria, oh, there are certain months of the year and even certain whole years where there's zero precipitation. So you're, you're incorporating a little bit of maths because you've got some uh, interpretation of this, of this graph. And then you've got this uh, global map of, of these different variables. And again, you can, you can change the scale. So you can look at your own area and how it compares to somewhere halfway around the world or what your area compared to five years ago in your area. So that's the water balance app. Another one that I love along the same lines is the Wayback imagery. So it's just a Wayback. If you do a search on Wayback Esri imagery, you'll find it, ESRI. Um, and it, it, it has a swipe tool in it and you have about eight years of satellite imagery at high resolution. So you can teach, okay, what did it look like at Eastbourne uh, on the coast in 2014 versus today? Has, can, I, can I perceive any movement of the shoreline? So you can teach about coastal erosion. You can go to the middle of Saudi Arabia or the central USA or any, anywhere else where those big center pivot irrigation systems happen. Okay, how is the spread of center pivot irrigation uh, been manifest around the world. And then of course, what's where, why is it there and why should we care? Is that sustainable? If we're, if we're mining groundwater out of those places, what's it going to look like in 50 years? Uh, the Three Gorges Dam, glacial advance and retreat, uh, urbanization, uh, deforestation and reforestation. Um, there's so many topics you can teach just with that one set of imagery. Again, no login required and, and it's engaging. And to go the extra distance, Let's say you've got, okay, class period one, you're using the Wayback imagery. That and other tools that we could mention, you have a level two option where you can save those images into ArcGIS Online, into your own account. This is where you would need to get an ArcGIS Online account free for your school, for example. And then your, you and your students can actually save those images and then more importantly, you can add other things to it like population density or ecoregions or biomes or something, land use. You know, so you've got, okay, let's look at these other layers in conjunction with this, with this satellite imagery and change over space and time. So those are two, the water balance app, the, the way back. Another one, I'll just mention this here, no login required, it's based on the same tools, Living Atlas of the World and ArcGIS Online is the profile tool. So if I'm teaching about you know, physical geography and looking at landforms, for example, I can go to the profile tool and I can click on different areas of the world, local, across the valley in you know where my school is located or global i can go from you know north northern france all the way down to the southern tip of italy and see what the profile is the elevation change across that area and then look at oh well okay where do people live in this area is it on the flatlands is it in the valleys is it on the mountaintops so there are lots of things i can use right there in that one tool those are a few that i might mention but there's just one more the coolmaps.esri.com gallery all maps are cool, right, John, in some ways. But there's, there's a gallery called the Cool Maps Gallery. And, and the number 10 at this present time, anyway, it's number 10 in that gallery. It's the migration 
to and from each country according to the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs, incoming and outgoing migration for each country. So it's a 2D and a 3D web mapping application. You can teach about how has the migration changed for my country or other countries that I'm studying, incoming and outgoing. So which countries send people to country X and which countries uh, does that country send people to? So, for example, when I was teaching in the UAE, I showed this a lot because, as you, as you know, there are a lot of, of foreign workers in the UAE, uh, teachers and, and, and other professions. And so just looking at that with those students and faculty there is just, wow, this is confirmation that, wow, there's a lot of people that have emigrated to the UAE. And then, okay, let's look at where UAE citizens emigrate to. So just that tool alone, and you can see the changes over, uh, in this case, a, a four-time period uh, segment from like 2005 to about 2019. And um, it's just fascinating. But there are others like that that are just, again, they're all interactive, require a web browser, no sign-in at all. So again, some, something you can incorporate right away. And nothing against those, those maps in you know, textbooks that may be near and dear to your audience. But if I'm teaching about ocean currents and ocean uh, acidification or temperature, and I'm confined with a, with a map that's like, I'm, I'm gesturing here, I know we're on a podcast, but <laughs> a tiny map and on page 250 of my textbook, I don't have to do that, right? I've got this interactive library of interactive mapping content. And I can go to this ocean currents uh, interactive map again in Living Atlas, the world, ArcGIS Online, and then I can overlay, uh, add another layer and look at uh, ocean temperature. Oh, okay. Now I can see how the cold, this cold current brings the, uh, you know, the cold temperatures uh, to this surrounding landmass or the Gulf Stream or whatever it is. So you're not confined to those and in nothing against the 1970s, John, I mean, we, we've been chatting about, uh, you know, the who and so on and so forth. But the point is, you don't have to use that map that's, that's very small and that you can't change the scale or, any, or add any data to. So I just wanted to introduce people to that. You know, look at GIS, even if you're not doing any spatial analysis, look at, as, look at it as a content tool uh, for, for starters. It is a rich content tool for supporting all kinds of instruction. Sorry to go on and on. No, it's fascinating. We'll put all those links in. And before we spoke, I thought, well, I'm going to play about some of these. And they're amazing. I really enjoyed it. But, but as you know, right from when I first started the Geographical Association, um, Alan Parkinson and I were doing some work with Digital Worlds. And we, were, we took training courses out to teachers. And in 2006, we were talking about how GIS should be creatively integrated into teaching. We had a, the, G, the GA had a book produced and uh, by Peter O'Connor in 2008, he wrote, GIS is simply not embedded in ways that are extensive or progressive. That was in 2008, but even in 2020. So here's something that I find we'll find difficult the pair of us because we both like GIS so much. The Geographical Association carries a straw poll at the beginning of the secondary geography quality mark. So these are, these are departments that are going for the GA's quality mark. They'll be, they'll be 25, 30 a year, producing really good quality geography. We ask them how they rate their field work, their level of collaboration, their subject knowledge, their GIS, as the department out of 10. And you know what I'm gonna say. GIS is always the thing, still, that people don't have confidence in. 
and they still score very low. And that must be frustrating for you because you, you're so passionate about it. But what do you think are the, the, the key causes for still that low take-up now? Certainly. These are great questions, John. Um, those of us involved with education, we know that education is hard, right? It is hard to teach any subject. It's not for the faint of heart, right, John? And it's also something that requires long-term commitment. So sometimes people will call me and, you know, they don't really know our organization. They like, hey, can you fund our lab or something and you get your name on the on the wall or or on the door or on the building and i say you know we're really not interested in having our name on something nothing against companies that are inter- interested in doing that we're more interested in like you long term educational progress engagement with students etc so that's why we've committed since really since 1992 to support educators using geospatial technology in their various disciplines now um, that said, we it, it is a it, 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 the, the educators are requiring, and rightly so. Okay, I don't want to just have tools. I want to know how to teach with them. I want to have some 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 lessons that I could either modify or use uh, as is as I see fit as as the educator. I want to have a support network. I want to be able to have data that I can that I can access, well, kind of like what we talked about earlier. So there's a whole series of components, I think, that need to go into this support mechanism for educators. That being said, though, yeah, there are significant challenges uh, in education, for sure. And anytime you're teaching with a system, it's inherently difficult. And GIS is a system. It is advanced way beyond when you and I first met, for example, when it was, I would get done with an educator, for example, at the GA conferences, and then people realize, oh, I've got to install something now, and I've got to work with my IT staff, and then, you know, I've got to have a lab that's halfway decent computers. I mean, some educators, you know, Roger's diffusion of innovations curve, right? The, the early adopters and the innovators did it. They said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever it takes. I'm going to work nights and weekends to get this to work in my school. And, you know, bless their hearts, they did it. Now we're working with, you know, what Rogers would call the, the early majority, where like you said, John, it, it's still s- slow in adoption, but we are working with the beyond the innovators and the early adopters now. I think in, in large part because it's a web-based system and you don't have to necessarily install anything. So there are some reduced tech barriers, but the challenges still remain, especially with the curricular uh, educational content standards and, you know, pressures from administrators and now with health situations I'm teaching online and all this other stuff. There are challenges. And anytime you're trying to, you know, steer a ship, whether it's in education or elsewhere, you know, it's, it's a big ship and, and it takes it takes commitment and guidance and, and resources and advice from educators. So um, it, there are challenges for sure. However, um, I think one of the messages that resonates with educators is that, hey, you're you're teaching with professional software, whether it's ArcGIS Online or these web maps that I talked about earlier, these web mapping applications, Story Maps, Survey 123, that you can go out and field collect data with your students on tree species, water quality, weather, et cetera. You're still using professional tools rather than educational software. So nothing against educational software. You know, I use it, you use it. There's lots of good educational software out there that is designed for schools and universities. But geographic information systems, it, it is designed for 
city planners and and um, you know and wildlife biologists and and so on. So how do I use something like that in education? No matter how rapidly the tools advance to be this okay engaging you know web based platform, it's still a system. So when I'm in workshops with educators, I never say that it's easy. It, it's not easy. It's easier than it was technically. Uh, being able to add data, like I was describing before, you know, within a minute, you could have population density and natural hazards, and then look at, oh, what's the relationship of those two things? Do, what, what, what populations are more vulnerable based on earthquakes or any other hazard that you can name floods, tornadoes, etc. It's still a system. And so it requires all of these components to help educators feel confident and comfortable. But then there's another challenge that we talked about earlier, and that is where does it fit in the educational curriculum? And my whole philosophy on this, John, is use the most appropriate tool for the job. If you've got a set of resources that effectively accomplishes your mission for that particular component of your course, use it. You don't need to shoehorn in geographic information systems into that if it's already effective and it meets your needs. But if you have another lesson that is using maybe a couple of old outdated static maps and it's not as engaging as you'd like it to be and you want to incorporate a bit more problem solving into it, that's the kind of lesson where it would be more suitable to think about, okay, how can I use GIS for that lesson rather than trying to you know, make all of your existing content GIS enabled? So just as a practical example, I was working with a a secondary educator and he had his students read an article from the Journal of Geography about this. It was a typical university town where the student core had spread from just adjacent to the university throughout the whole community over maybe 30 or, or so years. So we had the students read that article and then they would draw choropleth maps with colored pencil based on the table of data that he gave them for two days. And then they would do the research. And then on Friday, they would present. So it was a week-long lesson. That was a lesson that was really perfect for geospatial technology infusion because the students could, A, leap to from reading the article to engaging with the data over 30 years and start doing the analysis in, for example, ArcGIS. And B, they didn't ask, why are we coloring in these maps? Because they they could say, okay, I want to map the median age from 1970, 1980, 1990, 2000, 2010, and other variables too. Um, Are they attending university, et cetera? And so they could see the spread of the student core in that town, and then they could make an assessment on Friday. Based on my own analysis, this is whether I agree or disagree with the researchers in this article. And so it was, you know, it was more engaging. The, the, the educator thought it was worth doing. So um, in that case, it was a case of, I'm not going to change my whole curriculum and make it GIS-y. It was, I'm going to start with this lesson and then, you know, okay, what else can I do during the semester? And so um, it, to me, it is about using the most appropriate tools for the job. And so here's another short example, John, if you don't mind. Um, Let's say you are teaching about uh, rainforest uh, deforestation in Madagascar, and you have uh, you know one class period to do it. You might use I don't know Google Google Earth to look at the the runoff in the streams, okay? And then you have the students read uh, an article or watch a video about um, uh, deforestation there, okay? And then okay, do you see any evidence of it? Oh, okay, yeah, these are this is exactly why the the streams are so laden with sed- sediment. Okay, great. 
if, if that's the, the time allotted that the educator gives to that particular lesson, that might be the most appropriate tool for the job. If they had a opportunity to do a little deeper of a dive into that, then maybe day two, uh, you know, class period two, they would use something like ArcGIS Online. We've got a 3D scene viewer in there, so it's not just 2D maps. But now, okay, I'm going to look at maybe three time periods of land cover for Madagascar. So then I do need a GIS. I need it time period one, time period two, time period three. And then I'm going to look at the fragmentation of the forest. And then I'm going to look at the satellite imagery and say, oh, okay. The, the students will say, okay, when it was 60%, 40%, and 20% covered with forest. And therefore, um, this is the situation now. And therefore, uh, this is why uh, again, what's where, why is it there, and why should we care? This is why should we, we should care about deforestation. Where, where would be the most appropriate places to reforest uh, in selected areas of the country? And, you know, it's the classic geography complex issues, right? There, it, there's lots of things happening, economic pressure, social pressure, right? And why are there, are there even forests on that island anyway in the first place? And so on. So it's, it's an example of, okay, day one, you use these tools. Day two or day, and day three, you use these tools. So they're all good. It's not like one is better than the other. It's just what do you have time for in your curriculum and what's the most appropriate tool for the job? But uh, I, I, I know what you're saying, John. It, it, it sometimes is, um, I think we overthink these things a, a bit because sometimes, you know, if, you, if you're teaching about, you know, climate or population change, this is a natural thing. You're, I, you know, I love paper maps and I used to bring out that big, this dynamic planet, this dynamic planet, so different and so new. You may know that song, John. Anyway, the point is I would gather around with students and faculty and we look at that map and it's got earthquakes, volcanoes, plate boundaries, ocean floor, and, and the continents on this world map. It's a USGS map. It's great. It's a big poster sized map. And we would gather around that and any teacher could take that map. They don't necessarily need a lesson. Any physical geography, earth science teacher could take that map and teach with it. It's a great teaching tool. I still think that's a great teaching tool. Again, if that's the most appropriate tool that you that you want to use for that particular lesson, great. But also, let's say you want current earthquakes and you want to look at 2011 Japan, you want to look at 2004 in Indonesia, et cetera, Peru 1960. Some of those things aren't on that map. And also what's not on there is, okay, I want to look at population density, or I want to look at proximity of cities to the coast, or how many earthquakes have occurred within 100 kilometers of the plate boundary in the Pacific Rim over the last 10 years. Those are the kinds of things you cannot do with that paper map. Again, the paper map is useful, but using it inside, for example, ArcGIS Online adds value. I think it's worth doing, it adds value, and it is also appropriate, just as teaching with the paper is appropriate. This extends what you can do and what the students can do when you use it in a GIS environment. I hope that's showing my son actually too many words. No, when, when he was about, um, what would he be? He'd be about 15. I pulled up an app that showed earthquakes. Global. It was a, a global earthquake GIS, but on, on an app. And then I clicked it and it started to show the earthquakes. And he said, whoa, is that the earthquakes or this year? And I said, no, look at the, look at the timeline here. He said, what? That's in two weeks. And it was all the earthquakes in two weeks scattered across the globe. And because he'd only ever seen static maps, he hadn't realized, he'd never really thought about the number of earthquakes that they are because they're not reported. Of course, you only get an earthquake that's reported if, it's, uh, if it causes a disaster. This was quite 
But this was quite a surprise to him. And the relational thinking then between where the earthquakes were and where the plague boundaries are. And having done that, it was it was easier to see, or at least I think it was, that the earthquakes are slightly offset from the plague boundary because of the nature of the subduction zone. The whole the whole thing, it was a it was an eye-opener for me. And I would I would have been doing that if I'd still been teaching. If not, in, if not with the students it, on their on their own PCs, because that was more difficult, I'd be doing it at the front. So I think there are levels of, of using GIS. Teachers who are perhaps uh, are less comfortable or just don't have the kit could at least use it from the front to begin with, then start to open it up to students, and then start to open it up even further for data collection so that students are, are making their own maps quite often used their own mobile phones. We used, what were they called? EDAs, I think, when we first started Durham, those educational mm-hmm. digital assistants, uh, which were just nowhere near as powerful as just going out with a mobile phone now. Ding, 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 ding. You've got your data, fire it off, and it comes into ArcGIS almost instantaneously as soon as you press the button and you've you've mapped the data that you've collected. Yeah, you're touching on so many things that are near and dear to my heart there, John. Um, and time constraints uh, <laughs> yeah. being what they are, I'll just, just comment on a couple of things. First of all, the connection to current events is really powerful in a modern, what I call a modern web-based geographic information system. Um, being able to look at, like you say, the last 30 days of earthquakes and measuring the offset that you talked about, for example, in South America over the Andes over to the plate boundary is one of those teachable moments that takes literally one minute to do. And with the increasing feeds from the internet of things, you're going to get in the future, even more so than today, uh, traffic counts, stream gauging, uh, stream flow, natural hazards of all kinds, wildfire perimeters. Of course, we showed that extensively this uh, past summer here in North America um, and last fall in Australia, et cetera, uh, and, and, you know, and much more. We're getting this real-time or near-real-time data feed. So that's really powerful. And then the second thing, though, which is, okay, we've got the ability to put this in a web-based mapping platform easily because the data is sitting right there and simply a matter of adding data uh, to a map. But... Um, I had a lesson that I taught for many years that was uh, basically using a static data set from 2005 of uh, global earthquakes. And there's, I, I could still teach with that. But then, you know, uh, several years back, I thought, well, why don't I just use the real-time earthquake feed and teach with that content? Okay. And then we can query it. Oh, last month, last year, only the 7.0s and above which ones are close to the plate boundaries, which ones are inside my, diff- my country of interest right now. And another thing that you can do with that same data set that I couldn't do with my uh, other older lesson is I could create an interpolated surface. And this touches on the data quality issue a little bit. So, okay, I've got this um, set of uh, uh, earthquakes or let's say weather stations with real-time weather, uh, if I created an interpolated surface right now of uh, Algeria, let's say, I've got pressure, temperature, wind speed, so I can create a surface, you know, like the the weather maps that people are used to seeing on, you know, newscasts. 
having students actually do that, I think is really powerful. But the second thing is just because you can do something in a GIS doesn't mean it's, again, uh, you, you need to be critical of the data is the point. So for example, in our Algeria, most of the weather stations are along the Mediterranean and a little bit of the interior. There's a couple of weather stations, according to this particular data set, we always have to say according to this data set that are in the Southern part of the country, but not many. But the point is that the GIS software, ArcGIS Online in this case, will create an interpolated surface of temperature or pressure or wind speed or wind direction. But how, how much can you trust any random point in the southern part of partic that particular country. There's only like three points that is creating a surface across the whole southern part of the country. So it, it uses the data it has, in this case, that's not much. So how confident are you in the interpolated surface that it generates? So again, it's not, I think it's a, a very approachable way to teach about some of these data quality concepts, just because it does it how trustworthy is it? I trust it a lot more in the northern part of the country because I simply have a lot. So it's a way for you to teach about what an interpolated surface is and being critical of the data, but also you're teaching about, hey, you know, kind of core basic geography stuff about, okay, in the uh, near the coast, the, the temperature is moderated a little bit by the influence of the Mediterranean. So, you know, it's it's kind of something for everyone. You can teach multiple different levels with um, with that sort of an activity. Um, so I, I love what you're talking about. And, and, but here's the thing that I always come back to. There are 45 analytical tools, for example, in ArcGIS Online. There are 1,100 analytical tools in ArcGIS Pro. Again, this is the most appropriate tool. So the educator's role is still incredibly cr critical here because the educator is helping the students to frame it in the, okay, remember what we talked about yesterday in class about moderating influence, let's say, of, of, of oceans and seas. Okay, and now it's, we're going to be able to see the evidence on this map. So the educator is setting the, the context, and they're encouraging the students to ask deep questions and so on. So I, I again, it's, it's not about the tools. The educator's role in teaching geography with geospatial technology or any other subject with geotech, in my opinion, is very important. So uh, oftentimes when educators get a little, okay, my students will be using the, the tools a lot faster than I am. That may be so, but your role is still important. It's still really critical. Sure, they, they may learn how to geocode or georeference like a historical satellite image on top of a, a base map, and then we can use it for, you know, looking at change over space and time. Great, fine. H have, have them run with that. But your role is still important. They may know some technical things that, uh, that they can, you can use. And, oh, how did you do that? You know, so you're kind of learning together on the technical side. But again, your role as an instructor is incredibly important in this whole process. And the idea that the data then gives them other things to think about, I think, is, is the beauty of this. If you're looking at one map in a textbook, you're generally focused on the things around that, the, the information around that. But this gives you the opportunity to look at uh, interlinked relational things that you might not necessarily see because of the nature of the way that the GIS works. I hope that makes sense. But uh, that's how I'd look at it. Is that, That's how I've worked it with... I used to do practice on Alistair. Oh, leave it out, Dad. Go and find somebody else to play with. No, but I want you to try this out and see what you think. And he learned things that were peripheral but geographically important because his relational thinking improved as he was using those sorts of tools. Yeah, good point. There are there are higher goals in using geospatial technologies to foster spatial thinking. It's the higher goals we touched on at the beginning, data literacy, problem solving, um, being critical of data, 
um, spatial thinking, change over space and time. Th- those are the higher goals, right, that we want to achieve. These are just means to an end. And again, like I s- said 10 minutes ago, use the most appropriate tool for the job. I mean, I use Gapminder, you know, Hans Rosling, um, yes. you know, the, the changing over space and time. It's, it's not always in ArcGIS Online. I mean, I think, I think ArcGIS Online is a very compelling platform that will continue to evolve uh, along with uh, things that are attached to it, like story maps, for example. But I use, I, again, I use the most appropriate tools for the job. And I, I always encourage educators to, you know, they're, they're already doing this, right? They have to evaluate very carefully what they're going to use in the classroom, as you know, for, for everything they put in. Okay, something's got to go out. Something's got to go. Yeah. You can't just keep adding stuff. You just don't have time in the curriculum. So, but I think even though I said it, you know, it is a system and you're using a professional tool, I think it's infinitely worth doing because the students will actually, you know how oftentimes the students say, well, when are we ever going to do this after we graduate, right? When are we ever going to actually touch this after we graduate? In this case, they will. They actually will use geographic technologies because it is all around us in any sort of profession that they go into. Someone's going to be asking the where question, and they're going to be using a piece of this. If this is on their tool belt, they're going to be much more employable, and they're much, you know, much more in the way of critical thinking and a valued employee to that organization. So in this case, they actually will encounter it, and, and for that reason, and as far and, and, and also the other reasons we talked about, the higher um, goals are, um, I think, reasons to seriously look into this but touching if if i may just for 15 seconds on on some of the other teachable moments i mean let's say you're making story maps the question about hey just because that that image is on the internet can i use it in my story map well let's talk about that let's talk about permissions and copyright and if you're going to use a photo from you know bob's photos inc you better ask bob Right. If you can use this in your educational story map, if if you don't want to go that route, then, you know, have a teachable moment about, you know, creative commons and and non-copyrighted information in your own sources of photographs and images and so on and so forth. So there's, there's teachable moments in all of this stuff. It's not just I'm going to learn how to make a story map. It's all that other stuff that goes into it that and more importantly, even than, than the copyright and permission issues, I think, are how do I communicate about my research project? OK, I use Prezi or PowerPoint or or Sway or story maps. You know, what's the most appropriate tool to get a, across this? And I think story maps are, you know, there, there's a, a million and a half of these in existence, for example, just story maps alone. You're a That's wide variety of quality. one of the troubles, I think. Yeah, just I've, just been, I've just been looking at, uh, and it was a fantastic story map. I was talking to Jason, Jason Saul. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about the indices of multiple deprivation, and he pointed me to a wonderful story map. But there are so many. So as a teacher, because I think we're going to have to wind up now, because otherwise oh, busy teachers gosh, yes, are thinking we can go on all day, John. I know this is so great talking <laughs> with you. But um, as a teacher, then, what do you think are the key principles, the, the key bits of advice that we can, we can give them? Because there are, there are so many out there. How do we make it easier for teachers to source what they want without being overwhelmed by the hugeness of it all? Yes, good point. Uh, I would I would say this. I would start with the short one-class period lessons that Jason and the SRUK people have on the website that we've got on the GeoInquiry site here at SRUSA and that there are and there are others like that in various other places. Because all of these lessons have have several things in common. 
they are tied to educational content standards in different countries and different disciplines. So, you know, you've got your history, geography, social studies, maths, et cetera. Um, and secondly, none of them require any sort of login or sign in. So again, you know, bell is ringing. I got to have something. And they're all, t they have, a, they're front and back if you actually printed them, but they're one page documents. They're, they're very short. They have a list of questions in them that you can use in your instruction. Or what we tell educators is if you don't like these questions, fine, use your own questions. <laughs> um, but but lastly, and probably more, most importantly, they each are tied to a single interactive web map in the same platform in ArcGIS Online with one or more layers. So, that, so the educator doesn't have to go mining the web or the living atlas of the world for that matter for data. It's already there on ocean currents or land cover change or uh, flooding or population uh, change and migration demographics, et cetera. So I would start there because that gives you a sense that will give an educator a sense for, okay, I see these questions. I may use a few of them. I may have my, I may incorporate my own, but also I already have the map right there with the, with the layers in there. And so it's, it's basically all ready to go. And, and then the encouragement of course, is that now that you're comfortable with teaching with this interactive map tied to this short lesson, and now you say, hmm, you know, I'd be really great if I could have that, like the eco regions in there too. Oh, there's an add button, you know, add the eco regions in. So they're, they're gradually over time, um, uh, you know, going from the sort of using an existing lesson to creating my own with this tool. But even if they just use the existing ones, I think that that's the, that's the most powerful way to start along with those short web mapping applications that I raised earlier, the water balance app, the, the, the um, way back imagery, the profile tool. And, and I have a, about 10 that I frequently uh, teach with as an introduction to, you know, getting comfortable with uh, zooming and panning, which, which most students are now. I mean, even if they use Photoshop, you know, they're zooming in on individual pixels. And so that, that kind of thing is, it's much uh, more intuitive than it was a few years back. So I would say start there. Well, you've convinced me. I'm going to, I'm going to look at the next uh, intake of uh, quality mark schools and, and see whether people have listened to this, gone on to some of the things that you've said and started to feel a little bit more confident with their GIS. That would, be a, that would be a brilliant goal if we've got that. And that's absolutely fascinating chatting to you today. As usual, I'll go off and I'll start playing. And then it'll be half past 10 and, and uh, I'll, have, I'll have, not, have not noticed the time passing. Thank you very much for your time today, especially seeing as you've just come from straight from the AGU. Well, Fantastic. we're all in this Thank together, you. John. I appreciate all that you're doing to keep, you know, nudging the geospatial needle forward and to encourage geographic thinking. Uh, you've been a tireless advocate and it's, it's great to be associated with you. So it was very much an honour. Thanks for listening to today's JogPod. During these challenging times, don't forget the wealth of resources available on the GA website, geography.org.uk, including our teaching resources, which are currently free to access for all. You might also want to look at our Geography from Home section, which aims to support teachers, parents and guardians whilst children and young people are learning from home. There's also a growing selection of web inquiries, online events and quizzes all available for free on our new sister site, geographyeducationonline.org. <laughs>